Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And once again, welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 234. The year is coming to a close, and while I won't make it to 250 episodes by the end of the year, there are still three more episodes that will be released in 2021. All three are filled with incredible stories. Very proud of these episodes. So while you're traveling over the next couple weeks, or even if you're staying put and hunkering down, I hope you enjoy the final episodes of the Back of the Range for 2021. Don't worry, 2022, we get started all over again with some incredible guests, the stories. Don't forget, this is a two-way street. So if you have some players, coaches, golf personalities in mind that you think would be great guests here at the Back of the Range, send me an email, ben at thebackoftherange.com. DM me on Twitter, Instagram, you know the drill. Just get in touch with me. Let me know who you think should be here next year at the back of the range, and I'll try and make that happen. As always, please make sure that you are following along on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Between now and the end of the year, I'm recapping my top 10 memories from 2021. It's been a crazy year for me here. Lots of tournaments, travel, new friends, incredible episodes. So I tried my best to whittle the list down to 10. It's kind of impossible, but I'm rolling out the top 10. Follow along on Instagram. You'll get to see who makes it into this list. Um, Yeah, this is the toughest part of the year, trying to recap 12 months into just 10 poignant moments. But uh, go ahead and check that out. My guest on this episode you know, he did it all as an amateur and then some. Haskins Award winner, McCormick Medal winner, NCAA Individual Champion. Yes, Braden Thornberry did it all during his time at Ole Miss, including a record 11 wins while in Oxford. We spoke about his start in the game, his most famous golf shot in college. Here's a hint. It wasn't even on a golf course. Confused? Don't worry. It'll, it'll all make sense. But we got into all that. We also spoke about his transition from college to the pro ranks. And yes, of course, I couldn't resist the opportunity to get even more stories about the 2017 Walker Cup. So let's get started on this episode. Braden, you're at the back of the range. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We've been we've been trying to get this done, but I, I think I think the reason that we've had such a delay in this is both of our careers in golf have blossomed in 2021 and it's just, we've been too busy taking care of business. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, that sounds fair. And, uh, yeah, we've tried to do it three or four times now and it just seems like for some reason, it's been a bunch of different reasons, but it just hasn't worked out and finally we're able to lock it in. So you, you got a cooler reason. One, the, one of the latest reasons why we couldn't get this done is you, you were playing at, uh, the Taylor made invitational at pebble bleeping beach. I mean, Come on, man. I, I mean, I'm okay with that. Yeah, you need you need to pass on doing a podcast episode to go play Pebble. How have you ever been out there before? Yeah, I played the uh, the 2018 USM out there. Is it Cumberland Spyglass? That's right. And uh, yeah, this was a little a little more casual week. It was a turn. It was obviously a tournament, and there's you know it was 60k to the winner and stuff like that. But um, it was also you know all expenses paid, staying at uh, the Spanish Bay Inn, and you know you get four rounds of golf out there, plus practice rounds, free food, free flights, everything. So uh, it's one of those deals where it's a you know if you're invited, it's an absolute no brainer. Yeah, I didn't get invited. I mean, who do I see? Who, who do I see about that? I heard you were right on the alternate list. Just see, must be maybe next year. Yeah, that's that's yeah that that alternate list is about as long as the the seventeen mile drive to get to that joint. So uh, yeah, not going to be waiting by the mailbox for that. But maybe maybe to go out and take a couple pictures too, because I I do need to get out to Pebble. Um, oh, yeah. You you're also about ready to head out. I know it's just we were just talking about this crazy like what actually is an off season in professional golf. I mean, there's always something to play in and. It's not like the off season between tournaments is long at all, anyway. But you're heading up to uh, you're heading up to Arkansas with uh, with another alum of the podcast, uh, Davis Riley. You're going to the Lotion Club. Uh, yeah, who's better than you right now? I mean, is this? I mean, this is kind of like for a professional golfer. Is this like a golf vacation? It's got to be a weird 
thing to think about, like going on a golf vacation when you're a pro golfer. But I guess this is a golf vacation for you, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say technically it is. It was kind of a, a last-minute deal. And, and like I was saying, yeah, it's the off-season for a for golfer. Like when I finished up in, in Evansville, I guess, early September, I was like, man, like I don't feel like I'm going to have anything to do till like, you know, middle of January when we start back up, like maybe a few Mondays and, and stuff like that. But it kind of uh, – it turns in, it seems like every, you know, 10 days or something, something comes up where I, you know, go out here, fly to this, or, you know, that pebble tournament comes up. I do the – Monday from Mexico and get in and then it's all kinds of it just seems like every 10 days I'm flying somewhere else and it doesn't feel like as much of an off season as uh as it probably should have well I mean keep keep rolling because every opportunity just leads into you know better play and and you never know what doors are going to get open for you kind of know the drill of being a professional golfer at this point and we'll We'll talk more about that in a bit, but you know, you, we we got to start at the beginning. Olive Branch, Mississippi. This is Northwest Mississippi. You're like, I guess, twenty thirty minutes from from the Tennessee border. You're forty five minutes from Memphis. How do you start in the game of golf in Olive Branch, Mississippi? Yeah, so I was actually even closer than that. I was probably I could probably get to the Tennessee border about five minutes in oh, wow. Memphis and maybe twenty twenty five downtown, but. Um, so yeah, my dad kind of got me introduced to the game, like a lot of people do. And, uh, he was a scratch or one handicap, so he was a good player. And he kind of, he kind of got me into the basics and, um, I kind of fell in love with it. And so then we joined this golf course. I actually played a lot of my golf, um, in like Carterville, Tennessee, Germantown, Tennessee, right in there. It was about 30 minutes and that's where my mom worked at. So she would, um, she would drop me off at the golf course, this course called Memphis National. And there was, you know, five, six other kids that were, they were kind of doing the same thing. And we basically just hang out there, you know, all day, basically the work day we were out there. So, uh, you know, some days that would be, you know, playing 36 holes, but you know, some days we'd play nine and practice and then just hang out in the clubhouse. So it was kind of a, a core environment just to be around golf basically all day. And you could play as little or as much as you wanted to. Yeah. I think, uh, that's gotta be the ideal situation for, for anyone that's getting into the game. Now you said your dad's a, a scratch. Now, when you eventually get that AT&T Pro-Am invite, I mean, you know, you, you probably should bring your dad, but that's not, <laughs> but he's not going to help you very much on strokes. So that's going to be a strategic thing. You got to really think about, I mean, if you want to win, you can't bring him. Um, but if, but if you want to do the right thing, you, then you bring him. I mean, I mean, that's, that's going to be a tough call for you. Well, I will say he has, he's only played probably five times in the last three to three or four years. So he might not be quite be a one or a scratch anymore, but okay, at the so time he, he's, when we started, he was a good player. So he's working it backwards to make himself look like a more appealing pick for that pro-am. Exactly. So maybe, maybe this has been kind of a long con on me. So smart guy, <laughs> smart guy. So I see what's happening here. Um, well, you have this great junior career. You check all the boxes, AJJ all American and you win, you know, state high school championship, state junior. I mean, you, you check all the boxes that makes yourself very attractive to multiple programs. Uh, I'm guessing you kind of had your pick of, of anywhere you wanted to go. You obviously go to Ole Miss. What was your process like coming out of, uh, you know, out of high school and in that spot where, you know, programs are probably salivating over you right right about then? No, I would I actually didn't have that many offers only because I committed so early. I kind okay. of had it narrowed down to, um, the ones that really showed interest really early were Vanderbilt, Mississippi State, and Ole Miss. And uh, I always kind of had a bias to Ole Miss. My whole, my aunt, her, her whole family, they went, they went all went to Ole Miss. And uh, my parents went to the University of Memphis. So, um, but yeah, they were, it kind of came down to, I was always biased to Ole Miss. And, you know, once I got the offer I was looking for from there, I mean, I committed in ninth grade. So I was really not even, I didn't really enter, entertain much other stuff. I kind of knew that. Uh, the way I looked at it really, I was like, where would I like, what decision would I regret? I'm like, let's say I go to, you know, Clemson or something like that. And I'm like, that's a great school, but I might be looking back and be like, dang, like, you know, our friends are at Ole Miss. Like, that's where I really wanted to like, you know, represent. And, uh, you know, I've always been like watching their football games. I was like, if I go to Ole Miss and, you know, I'll have no regrets, that's where I want to be. So it just made, it made perfect sense. And it was honestly a really easy decision for me. I just had uh, one of your fellow teammates, Jackson Suber, on the podcast, and boy, oh, yeah? and um, and boy, I'll tell you, just a, just a, a wild-haired kid. Where I can just tell he just gets into trouble all the time at, on that campus. But he's uh, a beauty. Oh my gosh! Well, he he was telling me a little bit about the campus life down there, but I feel I feel I might get a better idea of what a a Saturday afternoon 
in the Grove is like. I, I'm just thinking that you might know your way around the Grove maybe a little better than Jackson Subaru. I'm going out on a limb here, Braden, because I mean I'm putting my you know reputation on the line here by saying this, but I I think you might have a more experience at the Grove. Is that fair? Um. I would say it's fair, but I also would say Subaru has a lot of experience too. So okay, so Subaru's holding have, back on because he's still in college is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. But uh, so Coach Malloy, he did a really good job with um, obviously our schedule came first on like, you know, playing good events and stuff like that. But if it came down to it and there was, you know, two tournaments we could play and they're both equally good, like he did keep in mind that, you know, we are college students and we want to go to the football games and stuff like that. So you know, out of the six home games a year, like we, we usually got to go to probably four of them. So that was, uh, which I know a lot of schools, like I've talked to some people and, you know, they said they never got to go to a home game, like maybe oh one God. or two. And I'm like, that's just brutal. Like, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just, a, it was cool that he kind of, obviously you can't make it work every time, but you know, right. the good games, you know, where you know, we beat Alabama and stuff like that. Like I was able to be there and I was even at some of our cool games and, you know, my senior year of high school and, uh, but yeah, the Grove is, I don't, it's hard for me to, to really compare it. Cause I haven't been to a ton of other schools. I went to the university of Arkansas the other day for the, uh, the game against Missouri. And that was actually the first time I'd been to another sec stadium. So it was kind of cool to, you know, compare the two environments and yeah, but from what I've heard from people that kind of been to all of them, like the actual tailgating experience at Ole Miss is kind of second to none. Yeah, that's and I guess the fact that you know the fall season in golf truthfully isn't where you kind of make your hay. I mean, that's where you kind of you know sort things out as far as lineups and yeah, exactly. you know, maybe you know get a freshman a little bit more experience so they're not completely white as the ghost in the spring at regionals. So, but uh, mm -hmm. that that's cool that Coach Malloy uh, did that. That's uh, that that's I'd say that's a pretty smart move. Yeah, he's a. Uh... He was a great coach to play under. He was he had a, just the perfect balance, in my opinion, of making us work hard. Golf comes first, all that, but then also understanding, you know, that you know, one day a week we want to go have fun and stuff like that. And as long as you kind of, you know, went with that philosophy, it was perfect. You know, if you ever, you know, kind of crossed him on that, then it could be, you know, it could definitely tighten up the rules and, sure. and tighten the reins a little bit. But it was definitely a, a good balance of kind of you know letting us be college students and also when it mattered you know I, I just thought it was the perfect balance to kind of keep everybody we we're having fun but also you can be like the best you can be on the golf course sounds like a great recipe because just like you said i mean at the end of the day yeah you're you're elite amateurs and you're moving on to the pro ranks but you still at the end of the day you are college kids and uh you know yeah i mean i think what it comes down to is the whole thing where you know they they say strict parents have you know sneaky children type thing i think it's one of those things where if a coach says you know there's no going out. You can't go to the games and, you know, have fun, all that kind of stuff. The, the players might honestly do it more. It's yeah. one of, like it's, So it's one of those things. It's a little bit of a mutual respect kind of thing where, uh, you know, it's an understanding of, you know, both. You can do both. And if you kind of go along with that, it makes sense compared to just – if you do a strict no, it's just not going to work. It's just going behind people's backs and, and all that stuff. So Well, you know, it's really interesting. And I, I know we've, we've really dug in deep on this topic, but it is kind of fascinating. I've never actually mentioned this to a collegiate player – you know, because I don't want to scare the hell out of them while they're actually playing for their coach. But, you know, you do realize that your play on the golf course and your conduct on campus is directly related to this person's ability to be employed. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, sure. it's I mean, you think about all, you know, finishes and this and that. And but, you know, you know, you have 19, 20, 21 year olds. And, and this guy, this is how this guy supports his family. It's based on how you guys yeah. behave on, on campus and on the golf course. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like you said, it comes down to how you're doing on the course, but it's also you're responsible fully. I mean, it, if anything goes wrong, it's not necessarily on you, but you're a huge factor in it and you have yeah. to make the decision. You know, if you know, you keep like if something, you know, somebody gets arrested or something crazy like that, like yeah. you have to make the call on, you know, do you kick them off the team? Do you put probation? Do you let nothing happen? And then, you know, you have run the risk of, you know, people judging that call and making their own call. So it, it's definitely a, there's a lot to the job that I think people, you know, don't see. It's not just, you know, putting putting golf, you know, uh, putting scores out there. Yeah, it's not just setting a lineup and stuff like that. So, well. Yeah, there's I a mean, lot that goes into it for yeah, sure. Yeah. As a game manager almost. Oh, of course. And and I think it's just, I mean, Coach Malloy, for him to be able to, you know, keep Subra on the straight and narrow for all these years is just, <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, just, I mean, that guy, whew. Just, just, yeah. Fire started the whole time we talked. But, uh, yeah, he, uh, Subra has, he has a real, 
a, he has a really good game. I would definitely not be surprised if he kind of, when he turns pro, he makes a little run. So he's, he's got a lot of game for sure. Well, he has won three times at uh, Ole Miss, which is only mm-hmm. eight behind you. Uh, you, <laughs> I mean, he's got a little bit of work. To, I don't know if there's eight more tournaments left in his career, so I'm not sure that's going to happen for him. But, yes, he – He's having a good season. Pick up that win in, in the Bahamas before the end of the fall, mm-hmm. and uh, it'll be fun to watch him. Uh, it'll be fun to watch him in the spring. Now, one thing I wanted to address: a lot of the things we talk about at the back of the range is not just asking the guest a question, but also getting an answer that people listening, like juniors or parents of juniors, can apply to their own game. And I want to talk a little bit about something I rarely talk about on this podcast, which is the golf swing, because it's not mm-hmm. a visual medium it's an audio medium i don't want to talk about plane and angle and grip and because you can't see that but anyone that has watched you play on tv or watched you uh in person knows that your swing looks a little bit different than what they may see walking down the range or flipping through uh the the channels on or flipping through on golf channel your swing is a little bit uh unorthodox and i guess what i wanted to ask you is you probably had several opportunities for instructors along the way whether in junior golf college someone wanted to change something and oh yeah (laughs) that's that's what you call an earth-shattering statement by by the host (laughs) um so at some point somebody had an idea that you should be doing it differently obviously you've kept things pretty much the same throughout your career how challenging was that for you to just say no no this this is my game uh, this is my swing. This is what I'm, I'm running with. Uh, we're not going to change anything. Cause you know, how, how challenging was that for you? Yes. Yeah. So kind of the, the start of it was I kind of had, when I was like 10 years old, I had, you know, like a lot of people, a little bit of a coming over the top type move. And my dad kind of, he just told me basically kind of the Fred couple, like take it out and drop it in. So right. I pretty much had to, you know, grind, grind into my head, like that feel, and um, it kind of always stuck with me. And like, even like freshman year of college, my swing was a lot kind of, I guess the word would be like loopier than it is now. Like it still has that uh, kind of uniqueness of kind of picking the club up and dropping it. Right. But it's definitely less than it used to be. But yeah, it was, I never, I never took a swing lesson in any high school and stuff, but obviously you have like, you know, I'm 13 years old. You have, you know, members and stuff thinking they know everything sure. and just from what they've seen on TV and, you know, basically my, I would, I would always just be respectful to them and, you know, say, yeah, I'll look into it, that kind of stuff. But I'm kind of, my thought process was I was beating the people that were my age and, you know, even a little bit older and stuff. So I was like, I'm, I'm just going to basically stick with this until it isn't good enough anymore, if that makes sense. Right. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to change into a different golf swing. Cause to me, like there's every good player has like something that makes them better than other people. Like, so I felt like I was almost a little scared if, if I changed something, yeah, it might look better. Like, yeah, it could even maybe perform better, but would that like, well, I lose my like spark and like edge a little bit, like compared to the guy next to me that has a good looking swing. So, um, and you know, looking back now, it's like, you hear people say like, you know, how many people wanted to change Jim Furyk's swing when he was 15 yeah. and like, if he would have changed, would we even know the name Jim Furyk? So it's kind of, that was kind of my philosophy of like, yeah, at the end of the day, like if you can turn the ball right to left, left to right, you know how far you hit it and you can get the ball in the hole, like the actual swing just doesn't, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it's very well said. And I want to make sure that people listening, especially juniors, because there's like, there's a lot of kids out there that have different actions, different moves, and also they're influenced by what they see more so now than, than when you were a oh, junior. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, well, now on social media, you pull up, you know, these these images of these perfect golf swings, but then go look at actually who's making these perfect golf swings. Are they beating you? Are they playing in U.S. amateurs? If they're not, then who cares? Well, a perfect example, and I mean, Will Zalatoris is a perfect example. Um, he, I mean, he's arguably, maybe not even arguably, but, you know, him and probably Colin Morikawa are probably the best two ball strikers on the planet right now, and you know, Will has this weird move that you would never teach. It's almost like the cardinal sin, basically, of a golf swing. He cups the wrist coming down and then kind of, like, lets it go, at, you know, late. But if somebody just saw that swing and didn't know who Will was, that would be the first thing they changed. But it's one of those things where, like, if Will fixed that, maybe he wouldn't be an elite ball striker anymore. So just there's no reason to, to mess with something that's working. I, I just – I love that point, but also, selfishly, I love the fact that you said something nice about Zalatoris. That way, later in the episode, we have already built up some cachet where exactly. we can yeah, – I love – okay, good. We're in the well, same. Well, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk positive about Will all day if he's not in the room. 
Okay. All right. Well, he's well, he's not here right now. And is he over there with you right now? Uh, no, he's not. Not that I know of, at least. Okay. Perfect. Then, then we're we're, we're safe. It'll be fine then. Um, well, no, it, it's it's you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter how you get it done if you're. I love that. I'm beating everyone now. So until that changes, and you're basically a, you know a couple of tournaments right now away from being on the PGA Tour. So yeah, I think I think things are working for you. Um, you have this great career at Ole Miss. We talked about the 11 wins, and you know we can go down the list of awards. Uh, that will take a, lo- a long time. So we'll just leave it at this. You win the national championship in 2017. And actually, before I ask you about that, there's plenty of highlights that I was able to watch uh, on, on golfchannel.com. Uh, couldn't help but notice there's a name on your golf bag that isn't Braden and it's not Thornberry. Uh, it's Teddy. So I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't have this in the Rolodex of uh, information. And what am I missing and where did this come from? Yeah, so that's an interesting one. The only person I really hear call me that anymore is Alan Torres, actually. So that's a. That's kind of an interesting little tidbit. But, yeah, so where it came from is it was kind of just a team thing. It wasn't, like, my nickname just in life. It was just kind of within our, you know, nine or ten guys at Ole Miss. But um, so it started off really there was this my first college tournament. We had this host housing where we kind of went over for dinner. And, uh, you know, we hung out for maybe an hour and a half or something like that. And uh, when we were leaving, we were kind of – they had a daughter that was maybe, I don't know, five years old, something like that. And we were – you know, everybody was giving her a hug or whatever. She wanted to hug all the players when we left. Right. And she hugged me, and she was like, turned to her mom, and she's like, "Oh, he's fluffy." Oh no! <laughs> so that, so that was kind of, you know, it was kind of a laughing point for you know the rest of that week and stuff. And then, kind of combined with uh, my name being like Thornberry, T Berry, kind of like Teddy Bear. Right. Some right. I don't know who it was exactly, but somebody just started calling me Teddy, and it just completely stuck. And then it went, you know, it was Ted and Teddy for basically my whole college career, and you know, even my teammates that were, you know, were there with me at the time, they still call me that. So. Uh, it's not like a super deep nickname, but it's one of those things, you know, when one person starts calling you that, then they all do. And it's just kind of, kind of what you go back to. That, that, yeah, it, it's kind of a, kind of a funny story. That kind of sticks. That's uh that's a great one. I'm glad you shared that one. I, I exactly. was trying yeah. to, I was trying to figure that one out. I was like, all right. Um, nope. Yeah, there's a lot of worse things to be called. So. I was going to say, yeah, you know, that that's a, that's a solid one, you know, cute kid at a host house. I mean, that's, you know, that, that'll get, that, that's a good one. Um, well, you, you, win this national championship at, at rich harvest farms and and uh you know obviously this opens a lot of doors exemptions and and conversations for awards that you end up either being a finalist for or you end up winning and then we got walker cup we'll get to that in a bit but one thing i noticed during watching the highlights of that final round is uh the speed at which you play which shall we say <laughs> is a little bit faster than most because you know i've been around a lot of college players uh, in the last 12 months and uh yeah, they. I'm seeing rehearsal swings. Then we got to check the yardage book. Let's check the green book just in case, and then wipe off the grips. And what about the wind? And oh wait a minute, let's start over again. And then God forbid, there's a coach nearby. Well, now we yeah. have to have a full-on dissertation of a 108-yard wedge shot because you know those can be just really daunting. Um, all of these college players are trying to, in some way, match their careers to what you did at Ole Miss, and. Mm-hmm. They, they look at what you, you know, Hogan finalist, Haskins, McCormick. I mean, you had this phenomenal collegiate career. Explain to those that perhaps don't play fast, that maybe get themselves stuck in their head, explain the benefits that you've found from playing at a faster pace. What is, you know, you walk up to the ball and, you know, where does it start? And then where, where do you pull the trigger? How does that benefit you? So I guess I'll go back to, to the start of it. I don't. I didn't know I really played fast until people started talking about it when it started to be on TV and videos and stuff like that. I knew I, you know, didn't waste any time and went, but I didn't realize quite how fast it was. Right. But you know, once I saw it on TV, I was like, wow, that's like about as fast as I've ever seen someone hit it. <laughs> and you don't realize it when, no. when it's your own routine. But to, honestly, though, the way I look at it is like, why does why does the opposing coach call a timeout to ice the kicker? It's to make you think about it more. Right. Like, in ideal world, the kicker's going to go up there, he's going to waste three seconds, he's going to go ahead and hit it. Like, that's kind of, I think that's, you just, I think when you get on tee box, there's positive thoughts, you see the fairway, and the longer you sit there, I mean, that's why when you have to sit on tee box for, you know, 15 minutes, it makes the tee shot just harder and harder the longer you sit there. You're just, you're thinking about all the bad things that can happen, and I think that's what so many people do. Like, instead of just, like you said, if it's 108, a little into the wind, like, you know, grab a club, hit a 115 shot and just, you know, I mean, it comes down to more of hitting a good shot. Like that 108 shot is just not that 
complicated if it may, if that makes sense like, yeah it's more people just trying to make it harder than it really is and i also think it's le- it's thinking beyond the actual shot at hand you're talking about where you want to leave the ball for your birdie putt why don't you worry about actually getting it on the green first because the difference between a 15 footer and a 20 footer may not be that great yeah i mean exactly i think it's just you know i i did i probably take a little more time now okay only because i think i'm a little like better now than i was you know my freshman year of college so like it definitely like there's a little more to look at but I'm I'm the exact same speed. Once I pull the quad and go, I'm the exact same speed. But yeah, I think it's just I don't I don't know why some people take so long. I don't know. If, there's a little bit of probably anxiousness to hit it almost, and like I know that some hard shots people take longer because they're almost scared to hit it a little bit. Right. But that's almost like a tee shot. I kind of make a point of you know when I have a really hard tee shot that I'm you know everybody has those tee shots on certain courses where you're nervous, and you're thinking about it, you know, two or three holes out, like you're kind of in the back of your mind. But right. I always honestly try to make a point to hit those quicker, get it in the ground, pick a shot and go and just don't don't think about it because that just doesn't usually help you in any way. So yeah, just I mean the advice to to other college players would be pretty much just that. Like you know what to do. Like on the range if somebody said hit a 160 yard shot that has a little draw, you would just stand over and hit it. Like you wouldn't think about it for, you know, three minutes before you do it. Well, I think your scoring average in your sophomore season was about 69.57, so I think people listening can kind of take that to heart. He kind of knows what he's talking about. Now, one of the most famous golf shots you've ever hit at Ole Miss, and you know exactly where I'm going with this, it was not on a golf course. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't at Rich Harvest Farms. wasn't uh, wasn't at your practice facility. It was at, uh, it was at Hemingway Stadium. So, this is probably the most, uh, you know, to date, I would say this might be the, the, the shot that people see on tv or, or on you know golf channel reruns or clips or whatever um it's at a football game it's at your home it's at a home game home it's at an old miss home game and in recognition of your your win at the ncaa's they have you come out on the field and instead of waving to the crowd or holding up the trophy uh you bring out a golf club and a football and proceed to hit it from i think about the five or seven yard line through the uprights so um my initial question is whose bright idea was this? Uh, because uh, I know that they love you there at Ole Miss, but it's 60,000 people, probably a little bit, you know, uh, you know, a little bit liquored up and they see a golfer come out there and you know, and you know, you're getting booed if you miss this, right? Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. All right. So, so who, whose bright idea was this? So it's kind of, it's interesting. So that was an, it was a sold out LSU game. So it was oh, definitely shit. rowdy, like you were saying. <laughs> and so we had this kind of like this kind of parody video. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was kind of like a spoof of like a, you know, a 30 for 30. And it was called like a fall thing. And it was kind of me and coach Malloy. And we were kind of saying like, it was just kind of this funny thing that like the Ole Miss productions just kind of did these things that they would play in the staff meetings. And we would kind of like, it was hitting a football and like a guy would run around and you would catch it. And so it was kind of a combo of football and golf. And it was kind of saying that, you know, it was, I want to do that as my career. And it was just kind of had these funny interviews and you, you can check it out. It's on the, it's on YouTube somewhere. Oh, I'll bring but, it up. Uh, yeah. So it was, uh, but yeah, I don't remember exactly whose idea it was, but I remember they were like, do you think you can like, you know, hit it through the field goal basically. And I was like, yeah. So we grabbed like a nine iron and teed it up at like the five and made it easy. And we actually probably got back to like, the 20 and was still able to do it oh my god and they, were, and they were like they were like and i didn't miss didn't miss one it actually wasn't very hard like it looked it may look hard but it's right. really not well i think fi- i figured the, that too i figured it's something that once you do it's pretty easy but then again add in the sixty thousand, and that must have been a little bit different yes i don't remember whose exact idea it was but i think i was saying like oh i could do this like at a game or something like that and i was just <laughs> kidding but then like I think Coach Malloy, again, I'm kind of like speculating on this. I don't remember exactly how it went down, but I think Coach Malloy like came in one day and was like, hey, they want to, you know, recognize you at the, you know, at the LSU game for, I think it was, I think that was for winning the NCAAs the, the previous year. And they were like, do you think you can, you know, hit one through the field goal or whatever, like you were, you know, at that, uh, at that little like video shoot we were doing. And I was like, probably. So we went out there on Friday, exact spot. And I made like, I mean, literally like 12 in a row. And I was like, yeah, I mean, honestly, like, I know it's going to be pressure, but like, I don't really don't think I can miss this. Like it just kind of goes through like from that close, you know? Right. And uh, they're like, okay. So, you know, the day, I was a little nervous and actually it's a fumble tidbit. I had a hole. we had qualifying that morning and I had a hole in one. So oh was, my uh, God. So that was, so that was a cool day. But, uh, so we, we got out there and, um, 
I think it was in the first quarter, so it was early, but uh, I took a glove, and I've had some some hate on Twitter and stuff for having the glove, but hitting the football, it, it, spent, it spends the club. And yeah, stuff of course it so does. I, I, was like, I was like, I'd rather have hate for the glove than miss this thing. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, so threw the glove on, kind of walked out there as they're announcing, and I don't, I don't honestly, like, think they thought I was actually going to hit it like the student section and stuff. Like I thought it was like a little bit of a spoof or something, oh, but okay. uh, yeah. So I went out there and you can kind of see in the video, like even the football team's kind of looking over there and and stuff. And then uh, I hit it. It actually went through close to the middle, but it kind of like faded off. So it actually looks like it like was close to missing on the video, but uh, that was probably the closest one to missing. I hit out of like the 12 to 15 I hit, but yeah, it was a really, um, it was a cool thing. And like, it was probably the coolest thing I did like at Ole Miss, but it was definitely, like you said, very risky because it would have been just a really bad failure. So you just kind of <laughs> hit like a low little sputtery shank and, uh-huh. it, and that would have been very anticlimactic for sure. You have no desire to ever try that again, do you? <laughs> yeah, I, I'll just go out on top. There you it was, go. It was a cool memory. And I have people every once in a while, like, you know, send me videos from it where they were in the student section and stuff. And I went crazy when I went in, but that was, that was a cool memory for sure. That's uh, yeah. I had to ask you not, not the, how did you do it? Because again, like you said, you just—it's a pretty big target there. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I was—I had to know whose bright idea that was to say, yeah, just let's just throw you out there in front of sixty thousand, you know, liquored up people at a football game. Um, yeah, but, well, that's yeah, crazy. If if the if the national championship is the highlight of your collegiate career, then I'm guessing right near the top of the amateur career is the Walker Cup, and and you know by you. Actually, by you being here at the back of the range, I have we, we've reached now half of the 17 team and Spider Miller have now been guests on the podcast. So, wow. uh, so it's you and we got more Kawas, uh, Taurus, Redman, and Hagestad. So I'm missing, missing Gim and Cameron Champ and Norman Jong and Scheffler and, and McNeely. Now, um, you know, to quote Leo uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio of in Wolf of Wall Street, uh, I'm not I'm not leaving. So uh, I'm going to get them all eventually. <laughs> But, oh, yeah. uh, but I, you know, I think this, this team is, is going to kind of be compared to that, uh, to that 2007 team, you know, that, that featured, uh, you know, famous golf podcaster, Colt Nost and other golf enthusiasts like Dustin Johnson and Billy Horschel and Webb Simpson. But of the guys that I'm missing on your team, who do you think is going to be the best episode? Who should I really laser in on? Like, I, I mean, I'm going to get them all, but who out of the five that I'm missing, do I need to kind of make sure I get as quickly as possible? I, w- I would have, you said you didn't have Mav, right? I haven't had McNeely, Scheffler, Zhang, Champ, and Gim. I think McNeely would have to be the most interesting based on his career kind of uh, trajectory. He was obviously the number one AM, and then he kind of said, I didn't really talk to him about it, but like he kind of said he wasn't going to turn pro yeah. when he was playing pro tournaments. And he turns pro, has success on the corner fairy. It was very – I would have to think his would definitely be the most uh, interesting to hear kind of his thought process on that stuff. That was, he, he's an interesting dude for sure. He's awesome. These, these Stanford guys, I've had a bunch of them on the podcast. And, boy, you know, I don't know what, I don't know if you've spent a lot of time with him or any other Stanford guys, but they, they are just a little bit different. They're just a little – it's almost like they're too smart and then they're also just too yeah. good at golf. It's a, like it's – a, it's not a fair mix. Yeah, it's a good combo, though. Yeah, I mean, you're not gonna, you're, you'll, you'll get you'll get through life that way. It's just you know, for me, I you know feel kind of you know not real smart when I'm talking to him. You you go to uh, that that Walker Cup at at LACC. I mean, that was, I mean, you guys just boat raced GB and I, and and you know the first <laughs> first match out, Norman and Colin beat Ellis and Plant eight and seven, and I think Zalatoris. They finished on eleven. Yeah, they finished on eleven. I think I can't remember if it was Zalatoris or if it was Hagestad, but I, I have heard the story of like they're just walking in and people are actually still walking out playing their matches. And they're looking over, thinking that there's like an injury. They're like, what the hell's going on? And they're like, no, we're done. And uh, exactly, yeah. Now you didn't play in the morning. Did you follow any matches, or were you just kind of getting ready for your afternoon singles? Yeah, I followed some matches and. Uh... Like nobody really specific, but I was kind of roaming around, and then I kind of got there a hair later, roamed around, and then kind of went straight to my warm up because I believe I was first off in the afternoon, so it wasn't super late. But yeah, that week was uh, definitely extremely memorable being out about there, and it's you know a future U.S. Open venue, and you know, and obviously with that team at the time, it was a great team, or at the time it was a good team. Now it's a ridiculous team. So yeah, uh, looking back, you can definitely see like you know how good everybody actually was on that team. And, you know, you, you were the first match out, and it was kind of funny. You know, Spider put you out first in the afternoon, and you're playing against Harry Ellis, who you, who you defeat. 
and clearly he hasn't really broken a sweat yet and not in a good way unfortunately but you know he went to FSU you obviously all missed you must have bumped into him at some point in your collegiate career what was the conversation like when you're playing him in singles and he just got worked eight and seven in, in, in the morning did that even get brought up or anything like that or was it just all systems go when when and, and kind of down to business no it's kind of, yeah it's kind of an interesting interesting environment I honestly think that the Walker Cup is kind of a little more almost like dynamic than the the Ryder Cup only because like you know I knew him and I knew Paul McBride and that was really it on that team so it was kind of a it was truly a I think what the Ryder Cup used to be you know like a United States team versus a you know Great Britain Ireland team that like, we didn't cross over hardly in it you know right, what I mean right and you know the Ryder Cup is it's basically guys that play every week and yeah they all live in like Jupiter that. yeah exactly so I, I do think the the Walker Cup has that a cool dynamic with you know obviously I knew Harry but for the most part I mean I was meeting people I never met before and, and you know playing against them it has a little more of a like hatred's not the right word but like a like a rivalness to it when you feel like you're actually playing against you know the other countries you know compared to just them living here so uh, but yeah the yeah Harry's a nice guy and uh, no it was not mentioned how bad he lost in the morning <laughs> but uh, we were yeah we were playing and it was a good match and. Uh, I was up a couple, and I think I was one up going in 18, and I hit this six iron in there to like two inches, and was able to walk it off like that. So that was that was pretty sweet to you know kind of not give him a chance on the last. That's uh, that's a good way to win it. Um, one of your teammates uh, again there, we just mentioned him, uh, Mr. Hagestad. Uh, he listens to this podcast. He actually knows that we're recording this today, and mm -hmm. I, I believe you guys had a little bit of a game recently at LACC. Yeah, we did. We played um, on. Let's see, what's today? We played on Friday, I believe, out there. It was my first time being back, and uh, my girlfriend had a – she was in a, a film, um, like a featured film out there, and they debuted it in Dallas, and uh, they, they premiered it out in L.A. So we went out there and, and saw it, and uh, I texted him and to see if he was, you know, if he was busy or whatever, and he said, well, we can go out there and play. So it was kind of cool to, to see the golf course again, not in, not in Walker Cup conditions and playing a little bit shorter tee, so it was a little more enjoyable for sure. So you call up, I love it, calling up Hagestead saying, my actress girlfriend's in town, let's get a quick game. That's a pretty good flex <laughs> on Hagestead. Anytime you could pull one off on him, that's great. That's very well played. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, both of us, we, neither one of us had been, you know, fully practiced up being kind of in the middle of a, I don't know if he, if he would call it an offseason for himself with, with his situation, but the kind of offseason for me, neither of us had been playing too much and stuff. So it was kind of a, we weren't, we weren't playing great, but it was fun. Hey, that's uh, just walking down memory lane, and that there's nothing wrong with that. Now, Zalator shared a story uh, about Doc Redman, and uh, on on his episode uh, during the for talking about the Walker Cup, and right. uh, uh, I mean, <laughs> and and um, and you know, I, I've heard. So I'm I'm going to actually play. I don't know if you've heard this story, but I'm going to actually let you listen to this really quick. So I'm going to play this. I'll be interested to see what this okay. is. Okay, I'm going to play this for you. So we we went up to Valley Club. You know, I mentioned we went up to Santa Barbara. And, yeah, and it's just one of the most incredible. It's 6,400 yards. It's a McKenzie design. It's awesome. Absolutely fantastic. And we get out there. And we're warming up on the range and there's 150 people on the range. Like, mind you, this is like Tuesday and we're just, you know, I'm playing a little two on two games, just enjoying our, enjoying each other's company. Yeah. We get on the, and we get on the first tee and there's literally, they told us there's almost, they said there's around 200 members. And I was like, did every single one of them show up today just to watch us play golf? And so, you know, we hit our first tee shots and we're thinking, oh man, you know, they'll be here for, you know, maybe a couple of holes, but they stayed the whole time. They watch us the entire time. And so we get done and they've got an open bar and have some wonderful food for us. And we have this meet and greet with the members and, um, you know, being a short golf course and the guys with, you know, great playing ability, we shot some pretty crazy low numbers. And yeah. so I want to say they were like three sixty threes, a couple sixty fours. Oh, and so <laughs> the best part about the, about this though, was doc i love you but this is one of the best stories i've got about you but <laughs> doug is standing to my left i'm or i'm in the middle and then doc's on my right and so doug goes hi i'm you know hands the microphone over hi i'm doug gim i'm from arlington heights illinois i'm from texas i go to texas and i shot 63 today and it gets over to me 
and then, you know, hi, I'm Will Zalatoris from Plano, Texas. Go to Wake Forest. I shot 63 today. And then he gets over to Doc, and Doc didn't play well that day. I think he shot a couple over, and, you know, everyone's in the low mid-60s, but, you know, Doc is awesome. And so Doc, after having a couple beverages, kind of fumbles his words, and, you know, I'm Doc Redman. <laughs> I'm from Clemson, and I shot 84 today. <laughs> <laughs> And everyone just starts cracking up laughing and spiders over there with his hand, hand in his head and just going, that's our U.S. Sanford champ, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I mean, I, we laughed about that on the hour and a half ride home from, from Santa Barbara. We thought it was the funniest thing we've ever, oh my gosh. So that was at the Valley club. Does that ring a bell? It does. Yeah. All right. So. I didn't remember. I, I knew. I knew Doc made a clown of himself. I, I didn't remember what he said. <laughs> so, so that that is what Zalator shared that story, and I've also heard from reliable sources that there may have been some involuntary swimming activities that night, and uh, perhaps and perhaps some slow, slow moving walker covers the next morning. Uh, uh, do you do you have any stories that you can share to and add to the list of of the, the legend of the 2017 U.S. Walker Cup team? The first one that you to kind of piggyback off the one you said, the first one I remember is the whole team after we had won that night where I think we were like the Beverly Hills Hilton or something right across the street. And it was like obviously a, a sweet spot. And uh, there was like a big pool in the back. And it was no telling what time it was, probably 11 or 12. And uh, we were all talking about throwing Spider in the pool, like just, you know, picking him up and throwing him in there. But like we – Half the team was kind of concerned that obviously Spider had a few and, you know, he's, I don't know how old he is, 60s or something like that. So right. we're like, we're not 100% sure if we should just launch him in the pool right now, being in the dark and, you know, everybody's drinking a little bit, stuff like that. But uh, ultimately it was decided to, it was a go. And I can't remember who it did. It might have been, I think Cameron and somebody else, they just launched him in the pool. And luckily uh, Cameron Champ, he, he jumped in there after to make sure everything was good. But yeah, it was, it was funny to... It was kind of funny having the conversation, though. We were like, some of us were like, yeah, I mean, it would be cool, but I don't know if it's worth it. We don't want to exactly kill our Walker Cup captain after the win. That wouldn't be good, no. But, uh, no, no there's, a, there's a couple of good uh, doc stories, too. I won't, I, won't really, I won't really share them, but he, he had a good time that week for sure. <laughs> I feel like it all revolves around Redmond. I feel like, yeah. I feel like that's, that's, that's like the, 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 the bright spot that everyone burns himself against. Like, they just stay, just stay away from, from that, so. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it, it was it was an awesome week, though. I mean, to think because like you have tournaments and like I'd played with all of them in groups. I'd played the same tournaments as them, like all that kind of stuff. Like even you know eight eight with them stuff like that. But like that week, you fully for a whole week you're with all of them. So that's like really cool. You know, at the time, like Colin Morikawa wasn't a huge deal, but now he is, and you know stuff like that. So it, it's cool to to have those memories with you know people that at the time are just college kids that are you know really good players, and then to kind of see all those guys that you hung out with for literally a week straight sun up to sundown, you know, have the success they have. And, and, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I just look at the, just the resumes of, of everyone on that team and what they did as an amateur. I mean, you know, champ wins the transmiss that year. And, you know, obviously Redmond and Gim go one, two at the USAM and, you know, you're, you're winning the national championship and, uh, you know, the son of Hannah and just, it's like, uh, Oh my gosh, just, it's an absolute murderer's row. It's like no surprise, that uh, that that happened it just it just incredible team and um it, you know you, you this was really not not the i mean you were this was just coming off of your sophomore year so you had a little you know a couple more years at Ole Miss and you like I said produced this really great career but you know at at some point uh you know it's time to, to turn professional and you've you've played PGA Tour events as an amateur you, you came in fourth at, at basically your hometown event um you know St. Jude to come in fourth place as an amateur, I'm, I'm compared to what you know now as a professional. Uh, I'm guessing that's a whole separate episode of, of lessons you've learned and stories and just experiences. What is maybe something that maybe you had in your head as an amateur before you turned pro that you've completely, uh, you know, that's just been a misconception. What have you kind of learned now that you've been a professional for a couple of years based on what you thought you knew as an amateur? Um, I think. I didn't realize how good everyone was at the pro level because you kind of coming in that 2017. So kind of go back a little bit. I was, I was having obviously a really good year. I think I'd won four times in the regular season and then uh, 
can and it was you know one of those things I was playing great I was you know a top five player in the country something like that but I had no thoughts of this is my sophomore year and I had no thoughts of like turning pro or or anything of that nature I was kind of just you know enjoying playing really well and I was practicing hard and playing good so it was fun but uh, you know then like you said I go to the national championship I win there the next week um win Sonny Hannah and or no the next week I finished fourth in Memphis and then the week after that I win Sonny Hannah and all of a sudden you know I have to turn down, you know, like 240 grand for the, for the PGA event. And then, you know, after I win Sunny Hannah, I started to have, you know, some agents and some people in my year with, with turning pro saying, you know, you could get seven starts right now and, and stuff like that. So it, it completely, it completely flipped the switch. And I, I kind of sat down with coach Malloy and I was like, you know, obviously this has kind of come up. So like, what do you, what do you think? And he was like, honestly, he's like, it's totally your decision. But he's like, if you want my help, I will fully give it. So I was like, yeah, I want your help. Of course, you've seen this for, you know, 15 years. And yeah. I have, I've seen it for three days. But um, we kind of just, I honestly, it just came to the conclusion, really, I wasn't, my golf game, looking back, wasn't ready. But I, I thought it was because I had so much confidence, obviously. But it more came down to that I wasn't just mentally ready. Like, like I said, I was in that headspace for three days. Like, I can't just, you know boom, 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 turn pro. And then all of a sudden I'm in no man's land. If, you know, I get my seven starts and say, miss all the cuts. So it was more of, I just didn't have my, you know, life in order at all be like ready to turn pro. You know what I mean? I had no contacts for, you know, sponsor stuff. I had no agent. I didn't know who that would be. So like, I just didn't have, I needed way more time to actually like figure out what I wanted to do. So that was, you know, basically I pretty quickly, honestly, probably in those three or four days, me and coach met kind of every day. And I probably was like, yeah, like I'm going to stay like there's and kind of what it came down to too, was that I was like, if I'm good enough to turn pro right now, I'll be good enough after next year. I'll be good enough Excellent. after senior year, if, if not better. So yeah. that was that kind of, yeah. And I was like, if coach Moore was like, if you play good, it doesn't matter. You'll be good. You can turn pro next year, whenever you want. If you play bad, you would rather still be in college. You don't want to turn pro play bad and be in no man's land. You're junior year of college and you're just sitting there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we were looking at it from a best case and worst case scenario. And, you know, it pretty much was a no brainer to stay. So, and it was basically the same conversation after my junior year, it was kind of the same thing. And, you know, I was able to, to go to Q school as an amateur and uh, get through there. So I ended up turning pro after three and a half years in the middle of my senior year. So that was, um, and I still think that was a good move with, you know, having status on the corn ferry and stuff like that. That's really tough to turn down. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a tough process. And, you know, I have people all the time asking me what the process of turning pro is. And it's really, there really isn't one. No. You basically just say you're a pro. Like there's no, I, I was literally talking about this about yesterday with uh, Merida with a guy and he was like, you have to do paperwork or, or anything like that. And I was like, no, like you literally, like anyone can just say they're a pro golfer. Like maybe technically you're not until you sign a deal or get in a tournament and make a check or something. But yeah, there's really, it's not like getting picked up by a team and, you know, another sport or anything like that. Yeah, no, it's it's really great you brought that up because you know I see it all the time and and you know they got these lead amateurs and then the agents are around and then the equipment guys are around and there's just all these different messages and you know it's it's yeah you have to perform in the golf course but there's all that other stuff that you're not used to dealing with I mean you know travel and picking you know it's it, it's kind of complicated to pick a schedule too I mean sure if you're if you have Corn Ferry Tour status or you have PGA Tour status sure you just look on the calendar and say okay I'm I'm going to play these or i got to wait for a shuffle to see if i can get in these but if you're not at that upper level you got to actually be strategic about how to actually go about doing this yeah exactly and i had you know when that happened and we were talking like i had no you know coach malloy and our whole team of people they were they were booking everything for travel they just said you know here's your room at the hotel we're flying this time we're picking you up here like i mean taking like there was everything and just it was so much more to it than just turning pro. And, and I think too, a lot of people, it goes both ways. Obviously there's guys like, you know, Matthew Wolf and stuff like that that turn pro early just because, you know, they're killing college and they're going to play well on the PJ tour and stuff like that. So those situations make sense. But I think sometimes people can turn early because of a little bit of like, I don't want to say like insecurity in their game, but they feel like they have to hop on the opportunity right, right. now because it might not be there down the road kind of thing, Yep. which is, you know, kind of you know the situation i was in yes i probably could have gotten seven starts then but like you have to play great to make anything of those you can make some money and stuff but you know even if you go finish you know 15th 50th 30th i mean you'll make good money but you'll be in no man's land after those seven you know 
Yeah, but the other thing too is this money you're talking about two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand. Yes, that's a lot of money. But it, but I mean, not to downplay that, but I mean, gosh, four hundred thousand dollars in the grand scheme of things, as a yeah, exactly. tw- it's not going to change your life. It may make things easier, but it's not going to. You can't retire on four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, exactly. So, so it, yeah, it's a it's a it's a crazy process, and I think mine. And I also had uh, I was talking to Maverick actually in that time before the Walker Cup actually. And um, him and Ollie Schneider Jens, because I know they both kind of stayed and they were kind of good mentors to me. And I was asking them questions. And I mean, they had all kinds of perspective that, like I said, I had none, like literally like no perspective at all. I was just playing college and all of a sudden this happened. So, uh, and you know, obviously I, I played well the next year and was able to keep it going and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it really, it just came down to, I just wasn't ready in my head really. You're also talking about, you know, okay, you, you win the national championship and you're a Walker Cupper, and then all of a sudden now you're the flavor of the week and everyone's coming after you. And I would, my first thought would be like, hey, I was pretty good before I won that thing, you know? Um, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, mean, I won four times that year. It was just definitely the the spotlightness. You know, I've yeah. been, been playing great, and I don't know where I was, like, on the Haskins list before that. I think I was maybe, like, third or something like that. I know Sam Burns was up there and uh, some of that stuff, but – yeah, it was a, uh, it was definitely a, a crazy. I kind of, I kind of had a rough start to my college career, and it kind of just kept getting better and better. I won the last two events of my freshman year. Obviously, I had a really good sophomore year, and I won another four times my junior year. And uh, so I kind of, I really felt like I was getting better and better and better. So I didn't really see a need to like rush and get out of there. If that makes sense. No, that's that's very very smart. Um, you know, another thing you know, about getting your, your professional career started, there's so much other than just playing the golf, but it's actually finding the right place to get set up and, and to play and practice and live. And you are, uh, you're at Merido and, uh, that's where we, we've bumped into each other several times. And obviously Davis Riley's out there and, and Sal Torres is out there and, you know, it's not, you know, there's just an article in golf com i believe about you know jupiter's the big hot spot and everyone's you know there with their their boats and and you know that's one spot and then obviously orlando's a spot at isleworth and there's all these different spots that a lot of the pros uh, stay at and uh, you know i've played merido i've been out there a ton and that is a hard ass golf course so mm-hmm. i'm sure the membership's great albert huddleston fantastic owner it's it's i mean it is such a homey welcoming place but at the end of the day you need to be someplace that is going to help your game and help you succeed professionally how did how did merido because there's other places in dallas there's you know there's trinity and you know there, there's a lot of places you can choose from how how did how did you pick Merido as like, this is the place where I'm going to get better? I, I lived in Oxford for a year after I turned pro and I was, I was kind of splitting time between practicing down there and then playing at um, Southwind up in Memphis when I was staying at my parents' house and, and kind of splitting time between those two. And uh, I knew I needed to move somewhere because I, I was getting a little stagnant practicing because it was basically just by myself every day, and which is fine for a week, two weeks, but you know, you start practicing for two months straight every day by yourself. You, you lose a little drive to like go out there. Cause it's just not as fun, you know? Right. And um, so I was basically, I was like, all right, I'm going to move somewhere. And uh, my final two spots were Jacksonville and Dallas. And I kind of had it, basically what it came down to is I knew people in Jacksonville. It's a cool city, you know, that stuff. But I was good friends. I played basically every practice round with, with Will and Davis, Davis Riley. And uh, on the corn ferry that year. So I was like, and they're members at Merido. I've talked to those people. Like, you know, I would, I would be able to join. The airport is unbelievable. It's probably the best airport. Oh, in Love, Field, Love Field is awesome. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's so, yeah. So I, I usually, I fly American. So I usually travel out of uh, oh, DFW. DFW. Okay. But I mean, both are just having those hubs right there. And you're in the middle of the country. And so the only difference, you know, was obviously Merido. I had to join, it would be like, you know, I'd have to pay for it, stuff like that. And in Jacksonville, uh, Sawgrass would be free. So that was kind of the only, the only thing not pro Dallas, basically. But in the day, I was like, kind of like you said with the money earlier, I was like, I just, it, it's an investing, I'm investing in myself, basically. And I think that's where my golf game will, you know, see the most growth, you know, playing with those guys. And Taylor Moore also plays out there, Martin yeah. Flores, Kevin Doherty. Like, I mean, we have probably seven or eight guys that are on the Corn Fair or PJ Tour. And, um, so I knew, you know, I'd be with those guys every day. It's a hard golf course, good practice facility. Like, so it, really, it was kind of a no-brainer, honestly. Like, I didn't, it didn't really come down to like a tough decision between those two. It was it was pretty quick that I knew I was. This is where I wanted to be. 
And I'm guessing when you're out there playing with the guys and, you know, you have a good day, you shoot 68, 69, you know, that's a hell of a score on that golf course. And you go out maybe on the corn freight tour. Do you feel that the transition to going out there where guys are shooting 64s and 63s, where they're really going low, is it is that tough for you or do you have to kind of change gears? How does that work? Um, not necessarily. I mean, Merida is kind of one of those in the summer. So I like, usually like the back tees, it stretches back to about, you know, 7,900 or almost 8,000, but, uh, where the tees would be normally would be say 7,300, something like that. So it, it is somewhat reasonable and obviously it's still really difficult, but, um, in the summer, if there's low wind, there's, I mean, a good day will be, you know, five, six, seven under. So it is scoreable at times, okay. but then I mean, I played yesterday and I shot like 82 because it was blowing 25 and 45 degrees and it was just absolutely brutal. Like you just couldn't make a birdie. So, um, so there's definitely a, I like that though. I like how different it can play depending on the weather. And so it never gets boring. You're always hitting different shots. And, you know, for example, like into the first hole, I've hit everything from five wood to lob wedge and it's just, it's complete, completely a different look depending on where the pins are and, and all that. So it just, I think it's very, makes you very well-rounded and as far as the scoring going to the corn ferry like good golf is good golf and like at the end of the day like you know if i hit a on the corn ferry i'm gonna have a say i have 120 yards i hit that to 10 feet whether that puts the power at merida or birdie there it's the same thing so um you know unless you have some kind of mental issues with that it really comes down to you should the, the easier the golf course you should score better so right. uh, i wouldn't say any yeah no like tough things with there but it definitely does help on you know play tough courses because you know, there's certain tee, you've played Merida, there's certain tee shots that are, are really intimidating. And it definitely, when you get to the, you know, the tournaments and stuff, it makes certain holes look less and less intimidating than they were maybe the year before. That's yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking that if you can get through that, that place and get used to the, the discomfort of Merida, then there really can't be many other golf courses that are going to, uh, that are going to intimidate you at all. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, I even kind of a specific shot I've, I've struggled with in the past is, you know, kind of a dog leg right to left and there's water left. I kind of always struggle with that, but Merido number 10 and 18 are those exact type holes. Oh. And, um, I kind of, I figured out basically I've played them, you know, hundreds of times. Like I literally play there every day. Like I'm, I'm not a huge practicer. I just love playing. Right. And after, you know, playing those holes a bunch of times, I was like, man, like if I just kind of like aim at the water and bleed it, like I hit this perfect, like every time. So, you know, and I took that to the corn ferry this year and like, there was a couple holes that, you know, I was nervous on a little bit, like we were talking about. And, you know, I would just aim up the left and rip the little cut and it was perfect. And I was like, damn, like that was really like a direct benefit of playing at that golf course. Like, and it kind of actually showed on the, in the tournament. So that was cool. That's uh, that's a great story that, that shows the direct correlation between where you pick to practice and, and what you're trying to do professionally. Um, I will get you out of here on this one. You mentioned Merido. There's a lot of, there's a lot of characters out there. And I think one time, you know, people listening right now, well, you know, everyone wants to know, okay, what, what are the games like out there? What are these pros, you know, they, they put their hand in their own pocket, they're playing for money. And I, I'm going to let people just use your imagination. Hey, these guys, play, yeah, earth shattering information. These guys play for, for a couple bucks here and there. So we'll leave it at that. But um, talk to me about this dice game, if you can, if you want to leave this out, but, but you can, but, but I, I, I've seen you guys, you and Zal Torres and Riley, I walked into the, to the men's grill and you guys are sitting at a table and it's like, you're playing magic, the gathering with 37, you know, sided dice. And I'm like, what are these idiots doing? I look over, I'm like, like, I expect you guys to be playing cards or doing something. You're just throwing dice. And, and uh, from my understanding, it's not even, it's not so much a money thing. It's more bragging rights and who can get embarrassed. I mean, didn't someone have to run out to the water and run back or do something oh, stupid? Yeah. Yeah, we're not sophisticated enough for cards. So, okay. uh, yeah. So, we, I do think in general, golfers probably have a mild gambling problem gotcha. only because it's, it's basically your job. You're spending money to get to a tournament and then you're playing for money. And so, I think it, it kind of comes with the job. That's what, what you're doing, basically. Right. But, uh, yeah. So, we haven't played that in a while. But, yeah. So, that the story you're referring to, we were playing maybe like 10 bucks a hand or something for the whole game. So, it wasn't, it wasn't a big thing. But, uh yeah so one day we were playing for like an hour or whatever it was kind of like rainy and cold and um we basically got done after we played we we're like all right if i literally did it first i was like all right if i just roll a three and a four i'll run out and touch the pen on uh number 10 which is literally like 600 yards in the clubhouse and it's like 30 degrees and like oh, drizzling roll a three and a four i'm like oh my god you're kidding me like just i don't even know why i did it there was no benefit for me to do that but the uh just the adrenaline of the of the diet but 
then Davis does the exact same thing. He's like, okay, I'll call a one and a five. I'll do it. One and a five. Oh. So we both have to go all the way out there. So it made us look uh, really stupid, but at least it was a, at least it's a good memory to look back on. So and and obviously, fittingly, Zalatoris gets the last laugh in this episode here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Damn, how did that happen? I can't believe uh, it. I know. Well, sir, it was worth the wait. I uh, I really do appreciate all this uh, all these great stories about your your collegiate career and obviously great start to your professional career. You know, moving up the ranks at Corn Ferry. Obviously, next year you're not going to have to deal with that crazy massive super season. We could actually you know play just a regular season of professional golf. Uh, go enjoy a lotion. Uh, tell Mister Riley to say hello, and I appreciate you stopping by the back of the range. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Glad we we're finally getting on the calendar. Yes, sir. <laughs> And there you have it. Special thanks to Braden Thornberry for joining me on this episode here at the Back of the Range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Every single episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range.